Pan's private eye. I'm not here right now. Please leave a message. Punt, it's Tracy. Got a baffling one for you. Goes back to the roaring 20s. A millionaire who vanished from inside his own aeroplane. The name, Alfred Lowenstein. The date, 4th of July, 1928. Was he pushed? Did he jump? Or was it just damned bad luck? Find out, will you? Report back to me. A missing millionaire? A real-life mystery from the age of Agatha Christie. It was time to fire up the little grey cells. The first thing Poirot would do, I thought, would be to establish the facts. It was time to head for the archives. Right. Uh, archives newspaper search. Alfred Lowenstein. Ah, uh, here we are. Got the New York Times, the Mail, the Times. Captain Lowenstein mystery. Uh, dramatic fate of the flying millionaire. One of the strangest fatalities in the history of commercial aviation. Flying was a rich person's pastime in 1928, but Alfred Lowenstein was firmly in that category. And then this is really interesting. One of the first frequent flyers, this Belgian financier owned his own plane, made by Dutch aircraft manufacturer Fokker, in which he had flown round Europe and the US many times, racking up not only a lot of air miles, but also what was reportedly the third largest fortune in the world. He was a man who made the news wherever he went. It's early evening and Alfred Lernstein, en route for Brussels, arrives in his black limo at Britain's gateway to international travel, Croydon. He makes a phone call in the terminal building and then heads out to where his pilot and mechanic are firing up his private plane. From the steps he gives a little wave and then disappears inside the Fokker F7 aircraft. With him on board the 6-8 seater are his secretary, two typists and a valet, plus the two chaps in the cockpit. And then at 6.45pm it's jocks away. Lowenstein's plane taxis onto the grass runway with Captain Drew at the control. Picks up speed. And our millionaire takes flight. As the tycoon looks down, he can soon see the Kent countryside below. But this would be his last flight. Daily Mail, Mr Donald Drew, pilot, gave me the following account of the affair. As we crossed the channel, Mr. Lernstein got up and went to the lavatory. Somewhere over the channel, our millionaire apparently decides he needs the toilet. After 10 to 15 minutes, he's still not back. The busy tycoon is not noted for taking unnecessary time in the men's room. His valet, Fred Baxter, decides to go and check on his master's movements. But instead of finding why his master's been gone a while, he finds his master's gone AWOL. The compartment is empty. Our millionaire had gone to spend a penny, but one way or another seemed to have paid the ultimate price. Uh, Daily Mirror. Opening the door in the inside compartment, valet Fred Baxter saw that the toilet was empty and that the outer door in the side of the plane was open. 
Though six people were with him, they heard nothing. None of his staff appeared to have noticed Lowenstein's sudden exit until he was long gone. Uh, then the Times. The supposition is that when Lowenstein left the cabin to go to the lavatory, he opened the wrong door and fell out. But was that credible? How had the mighty man fallen? Had a sudden spot of turbulence caught him with his trousers down? Or was it something more sinister? These questions have never been answered. What precisely happened to Lowenstein over the channel on that fateful flight remains a mystery to this very day. But how to investigate so many years after the event? Everyone was dead. The evidence was long gone. Or was it? I had an idea. Hello? I was just wondering, uh, in your collection, do you have a, uh, a Fokker F7? I'm trying to find a museum with a, uh, a Fokker F7. A Fokker. Fokker F7. Find the Fokker, or at least one like it, and it could help me reconstruct what might have happened uh, to Lowenstein. You don't think you have? Are you sure? All right, no, that's disappointing. No, it really it needs to be a Fokker F7. All right, thank no, you. No. Thanks very All right, much. no, thank you very much. I decided to cast the net wider. Welcome by Aviodrome, Lelystad Airport. Hi, I was wondering, in your collection, do you have... You've got a Fokker F7? Oh, that's great. Et voila, oh, there is one still in existence, but it was in Holland. So I booked my flight... Sadly, not from Croydon, and without a limo, valet or typists, and look forward to examining the aircraft in question. In the meantime, I needed to know a little more about Lowenstein, the man. Straight from the age of the great Gatsby, he was, by all accounts, someone who made headlines all over the world. When he wasn't in one of his several planes, he was plying the Atlantic on his favourite luxury liner, the Ile de France. He was a great ringmaster. He put on a great show that sent the message to investors, trust me, I'm a global player here. Dr Duncan McDowell of Queen's University in Ontario, Canada, has studied Lowenstein's business affairs. He had a great staff of flunkies around him, valets, secretaries, pilots, etc., so when he came into town, he was something that most people had never seen before, this great sort of whirlwind of confidence and financial bluster. As well as his various flunkies, his entourage would also include a pack of eager reporters. The press was his first cousin in all this. They set this lavish sort of theatre before the people of the airplane landing at the airport, the high-class hotels, the ostentatious long-distance calls across the Atlantic. It really was mesmerizing. Lowenstein spent money like hand-bottled spring water. He shuttled between New York, Toronto and London. He had an estate in Leicestershire and a castle in Brussels. And it didn't end there. When he wasn't in America, Canada, England or Belgium, he was in France enjoying the good life in one of the eight villas he owned there. Truly one of the 0.1% of the jazz age this man lived well. But how 
did he die? I was heading for Amsterdam, boarding a Boeing in search of a Fokker. As I took my seat, I only hoped my journey would be less eventful than Lowenstein's. As the plane took off and I too crossed the English coast, I pondered some more facts of this most peculiar case. Yes, that's yeah, all very curious. It wasn't until 16 days after his fatal fall that Lowenstein's body was found by some fishermen. But by then, the French authorities had already made their minds up how the free-falling financier had met his fate. After visiting the loo, Lowenstein had supposedly opened the wrong door and fallen to his demise. Official verdict, accidental death. But was that likely? My plane touched down, and as I headed through arrivals, all I could think about was Lowenstein's departure. I was on my way to Lelystad. 40 minutes from Amsterdam by double-decker train. And then single-decker bus, which was going the wrong way to all around the local area. But eventually, after seeing a little more of Lelystad than planned, I arrived at my destination, the Aviodrome on the outskirts of the town, an aircraft museum right next to a small airfield. I had an appointment to meet with Hank van der Os and Harry van der Meer, and for one day only, I was van der Valk. If you're too young to remember, which I obviously am, Van der Valk was a Dutch TV detective from the 70s who my mum liked. Well, I do remember him a bit. I remember he was actually a British bloke playing a Dutch detective. I seem to have wandered off the point. I had a plane to look at. Harry and Hank led me through the exhibits to examine the Fokker in question. Oh, look at this. This is an original Fokker F7. It was an identical model to Lowenstein's plane. Lovingly restored by Harry himself, it was an impressive machine. What's it actually made of? What is that fuselage? Well, it's a steel of? tube. You can see here, this is the fabric. And this are made simply out of fabric over steel tubes, it might have looked luxurious, but it can't have felt it. As I clambered in, I wondered if the interior would yield up the secrets of Lowenstein's demise. Oh, this is the door. There's, there's, there's only one door into the plane. Yeah. One door. And then inside was small and cramped, so much so that the one internal door doubled as the toilet door. The toilet was here. So if I go over here to where the toilet was, and then you close the door again like This that. was very interesting. So there's a very... Both doors are now closed. And the thing is, the exterior door has a window in it. It looks completely different to this interior door, which is solid. So they're really not at all similar, these two doors. They were very difficult to confuse. But what about that external door? How, how likely or how even possible would it be for somebody to accidentally open the door of the plane while it was in the air? The airstream around the aircraft is so fast and produces so much force on the door that you can't open the door very much. As soon as the door opens, comes in the windstream, and the size of the door is huge yeah. compared to the windscreen. And so you can't open because you need a hell of a lot of force 
150 kilometers an hour, it's very, very difficult to open this door. Yes, because the door is hinged forward, so yeah. the wind is yeah, pushing the, the door in. Close all the time. So yeah. you have to push the door against the wind stream. So if somebody's over there and he wants to jump out, the only reason is to make force and jump is all your way to the door, so you smashed the door yeah. and fell out and, and you're away. But the pilots will be alert about anything like it the moment you open the door. He feels that on the airplane something happens. He can feel what's happening over here. Harry was very sceptical that one man could open that door in mid-flight. If you can open the door far enough to jump out, no. From my own experience in flying and from this setup, it's ridiculous to think about it. This was crucial testimony. Even if it had come open, it would have had to have opened against the wind and in full view of the cabin window. Either way, it seemed very hard to believe it could just be an accident that nobody noticed. Harry's colleague, Hank, agreed. I don't think it's an accident. No, 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 absolutely not. But if not an accident, then what? As I said, farewell to Harry, Hank and the Aviadrome. I was glad I wasn't flying home in a Fokker F7. Welcome on board as Airbus 319. And I paid close attention to the safety briefing. Safely back on this side of the channel, I had a promising lead, a surviving link to the late Mr. Lowenstein in where else but Sidcup. So, I have arrived in Sidcup. Could this be the breakthrough I needed? I was here to meet John Clinch. John? During the First World War, John's grandfather had been Lowenstein's valet and Batman. I've got a very good photo of Lowenstein. Oh, look at those. This is who he is here, see? This was when Lowenstein, living in England, made millions in charge of Belgian army stores. And there's grandfather. Oh, wow. Sort of in attendance. Yeah. And it turned out John had once had a watch, donated in strange circumstances by our mysterious millionaire. And uh, it was um, entirely made of gold. It was black-faced, black-faced, quite modern sort of face. Yeah. And uh, he had a terrible temper, and they reckoned that he'd thrown it at my grandfather at some stage. This proved two things. Firstly, Lowenstein was so rich he could afford to throw watches at people and not even ask for them back. Secondly, he perhaps had a bit of a temper. And he was also, it seems, a religious man, a devout convert to Catholicism. They used to go to church, and my mother more or less used to laugh about him, really, that he was very demonstrative, you know, doing all the crossing, and he was very, very showy in the church. Of the various theories about what happened to him, which one appeals to you most? I think that he jumped. He'd committed suicide. Possibly his financial situation was much rockier than was thought. He just decided he'd had enough. A new theory. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, Steve. Could this be the answer? Bye-bye. Well, much to ponder there, I think. But was it true? And how to find out? Bill Norris. Hi, is that Bill? Yep. Bill Norris, who lives in the Pyrenees, has investigated the money man's mysterious demise. Hoping to talk to you about the uh, the Lowenstein case. Um, You're a bit early. Oh, sorry, I beg your pardon. I thought I was 86 years too late. Turned out the clocks had just changed. Thankfully, 
Bill was happy to talk to me. In researching a book, The Man Who Fell From The Sky, he had spoken to the widow of Robert Little, the mechanic who was seated next to Captain Drew during that ill-fated flight. She'd given him some crucial evidence, which seemed to undermine John Clinch's suicide theory. Apparently, Lowenstein had spent the flight working. He was making notes for his correspondence. Presumably, if he got to the other side and they switched the engines off, he would have completed the dictation to the secretaries who were on board. So, as far as we're aware, Lowenstein was just sitting on the flight making notes completely as normal. It doesn't suggest somebody who's feeling suicidal. Oh, heavens no, no. No, suicidal was the last thing a Lowenstein was. Hmm. Little's widow had shown Bill the notes, and they were just routine jottings. If Lowenstein was suicidal, would it really be business as usual? And John Clench had told me he was a devout Catholic. If he'd taken his own life, in those days there's a good chance he'd have been denied a religious burial. So if not suicide, then what? Um, I think murder without a doubt. My very first thought had been that this sounded like an Agatha Christie. Poirot's millionaire murder suspects would invariably include the wife who stood to inherit. And Lowenstein's wife, Madeline, didn't attend her husband's funeral. Had she arranged for someone in his inner circle to push him out of the plane as he left the loo? Bill pooh-poohed the idea. She wasn't hard up and kept short of money in any way. Uh, she had no reason to murder him. There was no lover involved, as far as I ever discovered. If this wasn't down to the wife, then who... That's where it starts to get interesting. Right. Lonely, not long before, had formed an association with two other businessmen. One of them was a man called Albert Pam, and the other was a man called Frederick Sarvesi. And the three of them together formed a company called International Holdings. And uh, the way in which the partnership was set up, if one of the partners died, then the total control went to the other two. I see. If you can't find a motive in that, you're not the man I think you are. Yes. What sort of man does he think I am? This was a significant claim. Harry at the Air Museum had told me that on a plane of that size, the pilot would have instantly been aware of a door opening. And yet, no one on board claimed to have noticed anything until Lowenstein was long gone. If these two men had this motive, that firstly does imply that certainly some of the other people on the plane were clearly involved. There was quite a large conspiracy here. Absolutely. And there was another dramatic twist. After Lowenstein's death, his son, Bobby, retained the late tycoon's valet, Fred Baxter, who'd been on the plane when Lowenstein died. In 1932, Baxter was found dead in Bobby's Paris apartment with a gun in his hand. Official verdict? Suicide. But was it? Had he been hushed up after threatening to reveal the murder carried out by those on the plane but masterminded by Lowenstein's business associates Pam and Cervezi? My expert witness was Dr Duncan McDowell of Queen's University, Ontario, who's investigated Lowenstein's business dealings. That doesn't seem plausible to me. Um, 
the metaphor I've been using is Lowenstein was the ringmaster, and they stood far more to lose with the disappearance of the ringmaster than they stood to gain from it, because it was Lowenstein who was the man who built the confidence. He was the man who had the attention of the reading public and the financial press. They didn't. So if not Pam and Cervese, then who? Was there anything else in his business affairs which could give me a clue? What was the financier's modus operandi? He created holding companies, and this is something still familiar to us. He would set up a shell corporation, get hold of a crown jewel of a company, and then he would have arranged around it weaker companies. So let's say the assets that he assembled were worth $100 million. He would then sell stock and bonds in that holding company for 150 or $200 million, taking an initial very quick profit off that transaction. Highly irresponsible. The holding company usually either broke up very shortly after that initial profit had been taken or slowly disintegrated. And it seems Lowenstein had been grabbing headlines shortly before he died as he tried to pull off another major takeover bid. He'd been going backwards and forwards across the Atlantic to try and seal the deal, which concerned a major South American corporation. Brazilian Traction, headquartered in Toronto, profitable, a darling of the investment market here in Canada and the United States and Europe, resisted with their full will any attempt of Lowenstein to get control. Aha! Could it be that in trying to stop a hostile takeover bid by Lowenstein, the board of Brazilian Traction had resorted to extreme measures? Duncan wasn't buying it. If these respectable financiers had finally decided they had to get rid of him, pushing him out of his own personal aircraft surrounded by his own staff just doesn't seem feasible or plausible one would have thought he would have been run over in a London street or poisoned or something. It, 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 this just doesn't seem like a likely scenario. So I suppose the million-dollar question then is what do you think is more likely in, in his case? So I think my answer would be death by misadventure. He was under immense strain. We know that from uh, testimony of his close associates and the people who had watched him in these meetings. He suffered from high blood pressure. He, under the strain, had become apparently quite absent-minded. So we were back to the accident theory. Only less of an accident, more of an emergency. Lowenstein's absent-mindedness was more than just forgetting where he'd put his keys. On one occasion, he was said to have almost walked into the propellers of his own aircraft. Apart from the sort of temper that might make you hurl watches at your underlings, what sort of symptoms might high blood pressure produce? I needed medical testimony, so I called GP Dr Sarah Jarvis to take the stand. Hello. Hello. She told Hello. me that very high blood pressure, or malignant hypertension, could certainly explain a few things. So with malignant hypertension, the sort of symptoms you'd be looking at would be chest pains, irregular heart rate, so arrhythmias, palpitations, headache, feeling faint and severe mental altered state. Yes, because he does seem reported to have had uh, incidents of slightly erratic behaviour and he, he almost walked into the propellers of his aeroplane. Cause he was Never quite a good an... move. No, you're right. Um, <laughs> but is that consistent with the symptoms of having high blood pressure? 
We certainly know that if you've got malignant hypertension, you can get very anxious, and that would certainly be enough to account for erratic behavior. If you then add into the equation lack of oxygen, even at 4,000 feet, he may well have had some of the problems that we normally associate with altitude sickness. Yes. Yeah, it's just possible. Aha. The only trouble was the experts at the Air Museum had been adamant that one man couldn't open that door alone. They dismissed it as ridiculous. My investigation was going into a tailspin. There wasn't a single theory that seemed to fly. But then I called in Carol and Bob Bridgestock. Hello. Yes. Hello. Hello. Hello there. Hello. <laughs> Good afternoon. Crime Good fighters afternoon. turned crime writers. They first met while working for West Yorkshire Police, where Bob was CID for 30 years. An homicide investigation is a supreme test for a detective. Carol and Bob weren't satisfied with the official story. Bob even questioned whether the body recovered 16 days after that fateful journey was even Lowenstein. I want proof of all, you know, I'm the investigator and I look for proof, I look for actual evidence to, to prove beyond doubt that, number one, this was Alfred Lowenstein. I mean, Carol's got details of decomposition in salt water, in seawater. We're looking at seven days, he could be in good condition. Eight days later, he'd be starting to decompose. So was the verdict of the French and Belgian authorities not enough? I not for us. Not for me. The truth is, none of the authorities wanted to take the case on. And conveniently, they didn't have to. To me, it's really strange as well how this all happened, you know, in the middle of the channel, if you like, because it's out of people's jurisdiction. So obviously the police, three miles out of the jurisdiction of the French police, they're not interested. You know, it's outside our jurisdiction. It, it just seems so as though it, it was planned. And then there was Lowenstein's wife. Why did she just go to the airfield after he died, but yet she didn't attend his funeral? Right. And he was in a, an unnamed grave, of course. This staggeringly rich man was buried in an unmarked grave. All of which, for Carol could point to only one conclusion. I still think he wanted to disappear. Well, yes. Um, I still think he wanted a new identity. I think he wanted to disappear, and I think he'd have had um, money secreted. It's as though it had been orchestrated. Did he need to disappear? Is there any way we could back this up? Carol had one last request. Can we have him exhumed, Steve? It was a great idea. I bought a big spade and a ticket on the Eurostar before remembering it was an unmarked grave. But seriously, could this be an explanation? Did Lowenstein parachute from his plane to a waiting boat that whisked him away to a tropical island? While his staff were paid off to pretend he'd fallen out. Did he survive to live out his years in some far-off paradise, far from angry investors, with no valet or typists? Underneath the mango tree, me honey and me... Rather than fall to his death, did the world fall for a disappearing trick from the master showman? It seems an unlikely theory, but so do all the others. In the case of Alfred Lowenstein, the truth is elusive. Every lead you follow seems to vanish into thin air. Mango, banana and tangerine.